I believe that every organization on the planet is really an extension of what the leaders believe it is. And if that's true, then not only can that organization reinvent itself over and over and over again, because the leaders are reinventing themselves, it also represents a value system that's lived into being. Stephen Morris is a brand and culture advisor, author, and speaker. He believes that at its heart, business is a human-to-human venture. Much of what people do, they do unconsciously. People make decisions with their heads, but act with their hearts. This is true for leaders, employees, investors, and customers. Stephen is in the business of bringing that heart, or dare I say love, to the core of leadership and business. Here's his story. Enjoy the show. Stephen, thanks for being on the show. You know, I had the privilege of being on your show and then you were on another show that I co-host and I was just so jealous. I was like, I need you on my show. Thanks for being here today. Oh, Justin, anytime. We're famous friends and, uh, you know, I just love having conversations with you. So let's uh, let's dive into anything that you want to talk about. All right. You know, I'm going to break the mold a little bit because I, I know you're the guy I can do it with. You know, traditionally... I'm sure you've listened to all my episodes. Traditionally, I go back and 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 <laughs> find out kind of where you grew up, where you started, because I think there's a lot of origin story that creates yeah. a lot of context to how people get to where they're at. And I'm sure we could we could go back there, but I, I just want to start out with a statement and kind of see where this goes, because this is one of my favorite things, and I, I hope you appreciate this. Every email I get from you, because I have I'm signed up to your your newsletter, which I think is brilliant. You're like one of four I read, so I love it. But every time I read it, I go to the very bottom. And I've said this to you before, I'm going to say it again. I love this. And you say it on the bottom of your email. I think it's also the the header of your website. There's nothing more powerful than a united group of souls ignited in a common cause with love at the core. Tell me where that came from. Tell me, you know, why that is something that is is everywhere when I have a chance to interact with you and your brand. Well, I can talk more about why it's important and what it means to me in the world of work and and frankly the life that I live and and less about where it came from, but I will say a few words about where do we get any creative insight? It comes from this unknown place. I sometimes refer to that as the world of possibilities. We can call that the creative realm in the poetic world. They call it darkness or the unseen. And frankly, it's, you know, ideas come to you and typically they're hard earned and and lived into being. So, you know, when I remember scribbling that down in a journal and fiddling around with the sentence, it didn't actually take a lot of fiddling. It just kind of came to me. And the Mm -hmm. first version I wrote of it, it didn't have the with love at the core. And I I thought about it and I thought about it and I thought about it and I thought about, well, this feels true to me. Mm-hmm. And how do I, you know, kind of before I go shouting something out from the mountaintops and, you know, all that kind of thing, I, I actually do think about this stuff before I send it out there, even my blog. I thought, well, is it true? It feels true to me, and, and is it true? And and how could how could I how could I demonstrate or or get the sense that it could be more true for myself and the people around me? And you know, it's interesting. I went into 
history. I looked at it from the lens of history, first and foremost. And I thought, you know, about the, the Roman Empire. And I thought about the Allies coming together in World War II. And I thought, oh, well, wait a minute. When you put love at the core, that's where the magic really happens. And so when I put that statement in, I knew I was taking a risk because it is a business positioning statement for me. It's my purpose, promise, and why I, why I do what I do. A, I think it's true. And I also think I'm taking a risk when I'm talking about love at the core because then we get into a conversation about, well, what do we mean by love at the core? And, you know, a business leader that might consider hiring me or working with me or even thinking about, is this true for them? They then have to ask themselves or get to ask themselves, where does the love in my business exist? Where does love in my heart exist for what I'm doing and why I'm doing it? And how to then did I turn this into this most powerful entity that has a unified force with a common cause? And, you know, I've, I've heard two really powerful things related to this, one of which is that I want a statement like that in my business that's <laughs> as powerful and profound. Can you shape like something something like that for us? And this is typically a business leader talking to me when when I'm helping them with you know their brand, their culture, et cetera. And then the second thing is really two things related to the love question, which is what do we mean by love? And I did hear, and I have heard, and in fact, I heard it recently, a client client reached out to me or a potential client reached out to me back in, I think it was November. And they said, you know, this whole love business is awesome, but you're five years ahead. Like the world's not ready for this yet. And when and was I, this? When was this said to you? This was back in November. Okay. Yeah. And I said that this is a global company based in Australia doing work around the world. They have offices in Australia and San Francisco and doing a lot of work in South Africa. And he said, I, I would love for this to be true here and now, but I don't think the world is ready for it. And I said, you know, I don't care. I think, and this is sort of the Moneyball statement, which is there's there's a line in Moneyball that goes, you know, the first one through the fence is the one that gets bloody and somebody's got to talk about it. And I said, you know, why not me? I'm, I believe it. And yeah, I, I may be taking a risk here, but think about the things in your world that you love. And those are the, those are the things that you're going to put your most energy into, your most passion into, and that's where you invest your life. Well, let, let me, let me push on that a little bit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah because yeah. I, I believe I, I fully understand what you're saying here, but just to, you know, put a little bit of a point on it, you are most nervous about the word love in the context of business leadership. Yeah. And I don't want to assume, right? But I would say that you think that way or we're nervous about that because maybe some high powered or well respected, whatever adjective you want to use to describe the leader that you're going after may not see the value in that. Is yeah. that is that fair? And how long did you really wrestle with that? Like a day. Less than 24 hours. Yeah, it, yeah. Like, I mean, I call it a wrestling match, but I don't think there was no other word and I, there was no way I could extract it from the statement and I feel good about it. Mm. Well, because I would say as a fellow brander, right, uh, two things came to mind. One, great. It, it automatically 
you know, helps you focus into the type of client that understands that word or is intrigued by that word and wants to have that as part of their leadership and, and, or part of their culture, right? So that's a bonus. And two, my man, it feels, it feels like you, and I, I can't pay you a higher compliment. Like when I think of you, like I said, I couldn't wait to talk to you today because for the listeners, we're recording this on a Monday, which I'm sorry, we're recording on a Monday. I'm always kind of low energy on a Monday. And it's funny, right before this, I, I told my wife, I said, oh man, I can't have any more caffeine. I'm so jacked up for this meeting. I'll start talking really fast. But it just really feels authentically you. Mm-hmm. But I want to ask a question about another statement that <clears throat> you've said a few times. Can, can I insert something into that? Of course. I, well, I appreciate the, the compliment and the kind remarks. Don't worry, I'm going to cut I, that out. I, I actually don't. I don't see the statement about me at all. Really? It's, it's, I mean, it is about the work that I do, but it's, it's everything that I put out there is about you and them and what this world can be. And yeah, obviously it's about me because I'm, I'm living this in some level of truth that I couldn't care less that it's. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. Let me rephrase that. What I'm, what I, what I really was saying there was it feels authentically you as how you perceive the world and how, and where you see value in leadership, right. To what you said earlier. Yeah. You feel, right, that that's at the core of so many really deep human connections and really empathetic human-centered leadership. If you don't have that word, I don't think any of those things can exist. Yeah. Agreed. Completely okay. agreed. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, that was a joke earlier. You didn't laugh at all. I told you I'd going to cut out all the compliments, but we'll leave that. <laughs> <on there>. um, <laughs> so you, you, uh, you're saying a statement that I say often, and, and I was thinking about this this weekend because i kept saying this statement and and uh, i just want to see what you how you'd respond to this but when you say the statement it feels true to me or it feels true to x what does that mean to you Hmm. it means that i don't have scientific data or data qualitative quantitative data to to back it up and you know because of the world that i work in i do believe in data to some extent, but data doesn't really create anything. Data only measures, as we know, things that happened from the past. So, quote unquote, true is, you know, if someone were to say, well, give me the data to support this, I I would probably point to the allies in Europe and say, well, we, we you know, we bonded together on a global platform to defeat a common enemy. And we did that with love at the core and a unified front and, and, and igniting behind a cause. And uh, so that's kind of the only data. That's that's what I mean by truth. You know, like yeah. I haven't studied this comment per se, although I've, I've if you you could say I've I've lived the study of it, but I don't have data to back it up. Yeah, you have some you have some use case experiences, yeah. right, and some yeah. field testing. The reason I ask you that is because one of my kids asked what I meant by that, and what I said is, it feels like an absolute to me, like inside, like to my bones, to my soul, like that feels that unbelievably a fact without being able to prove it. I guess we're kind of saying the same thing. Yeah. So I was just, yeah. I was just I think curious. feeling of irrefutable, like there's, it's not a strategic consideration that I, I tend to go into with that. It's a somatic experience that I have when I hear a statement like that, or when I read something that feels absolutely true, like I literally feel it in my body. I love it. So I think for me, what's interesting when I think about you just trying to explain what you do, 
there's so many bits and pieces to it. I, I look at you as as sort of this like awesome like Lego sculpture, right? Where you have all these different colored Legos that all describe a different skill set uh, for you. But if you and I were, you know, the classic, if you and I were sitting at a, a pub or a coffee shop and I leaned over, I'm like, man, Stephen, what do you do? How do you describe that? Yeah. If if we're in a, a completely business context setting, I would say that I'm a brand and culture building expert that weaves brand and culture together with business strategy to, strategy to make a to help create an or, organized system or a company that has integrity inside and out. If then we were to go further, I would I would bring it into the metaphorical realm, and I would say I'm a root sap and soil person. And what I do is I'm sort of a, a business arborist, if you will, that I work from an organizational perspective in the root sap and soil of a company. So what does the roots do? The roots, a healthy root system creates, it really is the foundation for a healthy tree. And if you want to harvest from that tree, either fruit or not, then you have to have a healthy root system. The sap is the culture, the lifeblood of the tree. It's the people that feed all the energy up and down and all around. And so that's got to get worked with and that's got to be considered within the, the equation. And then the soil is kind of interesting because it combines things that we can and things that we cannot control. So soil has to do with sort of our, our market, our environment, our society, and we can add nutrients to soil, but we but we cannot control the weather. So I help from a market position, understand how to work with the forces that we can and can't control so that we have a healthy organism. And ultimately we have a healthy, not only tree, but ideally forest. So mm. I know that's all in the metaphor, but I love, no, I love it. I, it's a beautiful way to explain what you do. I love, I had not heard you talk about the soil before, but I love that soil metaphor especially the part where there's things you can and cannot control, but yet they all feed the tree, right? Yeah. That's beautiful, my man. Yeah. Well, I we're going to get into your book and some other beautiful things about you, but I am going to go a little bit back. So I, I just, I, I think there's, there's uh, usually some really interesting things here. So you're in California, San Diego now, is that where you're at yeah. currently? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But you're not a California kid, are you? No, I'm born and raised in the East Coast, and I bounced around a bunch of East Coast cities until I think I realized I was I belonged out here. I moved out here in '94. I could tell you that whole story, and that's kind of a, a pilgrimage, so to speak. But yeah, that's I'm definitely not born and raised in the East Coast. Okay, so you went to school on the East Coast. I think you went to school at Temple. Do I have that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Did you study design? I my master's is at Temple University Tyler School of Art in Philadelphia. So that's where Paul Scherer went to school and many, many other really well-known Paul, uh, Paul Sheriff, a great package designer. I went to school with Kristen Samis. She and I were in the same graduate program together. She's a, a great professor out at Penn State now, married to Lanny Samis, who taught one semester there when 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 she was in, in school. But yeah, that's where I went to school. That's where my master's is. Awesome. So you, you bounce around yep. the, the U.S. Now, were you bouncing around trying different jobs out, different towns out? What, what was the, what was kind of the thing that led you, kept leading you west? What were you doing? 
Yeah, well, undergrad school was up in Boston and then grad school was in Philadelphia and I'm born in Delaware. So 30 minutes outside of Philly. And then after graduate school, I moved down to the DC area, I actually spent a little time in Maryland and then down to the DC area where I bounced around a handful of agencies there. And, you know, Justin, what I was doing is working myself to the bone, you know, like I was working at some people may know this firm, Supon Design Group in DC, and they produce a lot of books. And I was a creative director for them at the ripe age of 26 years old and like working six and a half days a week kind of thing. And I wouldn't call it a healthy work environment. It was like one of those deals. If you don't show up Saturday, don't come, don't bother coming in on Sunday kind of thing. Mm. And I thrived because I worked hard and I didn't take too much from the owner there. So he kind of let me be with my team. And then, you know, I had a great team and we got, we did a lot of great work and, but really what I was, I was working too much and my wife and I had just gotten married and I was like, look, this is going to go one of two ways. I'm going to like end up working for an agency or be in the agency world and not love it, or I'm going to go somewhere else and and reclaim my life, quite frankly, and, and try and be married figure out what that's all about. Yeah. And so my wife and I literally spent our first anniversary in a rider truck driving cross country to San Diego where we really didn't know anybody. And I actually thought that I would come out here and get a job. And it just so happened that the sophistication of the agencies in town wasn't anywhere close to what I was used to in bigger cities like DC. And, you know, I had some freelance work for a bunch of environmental nonprofits that I was working with, World Wildlife Fund and Alaska Wilderness Foundation, Southern Utah Wilderness Foundation. And I just kept doing freelance work. And one thing led to another. I was doing freelance work for nonprofits out here. And I had two criteria, one of which is that they had to have the budget to produce what I was talking about. And I had to present to the board of directors of whatever concepts. And I I knew that on those boards were other business owners. And I thought, well, if, they, if I'm doing good work here, maybe they'll see that, maybe they'll recognize that. And of course, that one thing turned into another, hey, you need to do work for us over here. And so it was at that point that I, I I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'm hanging a shingle and you know, I was working out of the house with two interns in the house and dogs barking as a client showed up to a meeting. <laughs> like, it is time to get an office. And been there. Yeah. 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 That was in 94. That's, that's awesome. Where did you meet your wife? I met her in, in school. I was, <laughs> we're going to go into a very scandalous story here. Oh, yeah. This is what the show is all about. Of mine when I was teaching at a university in, in Maryland. And uh, so I was, you know, 25, 24 years old, right out of grad school. And she, yeah, we met during that and got married a couple of <laughs> years later. It's hilarious. I see that you just put a period on that. That's the deepest we're going there. Okay. Yeah. Um, I won't even go into that. Yeah. But, <laughs> I mean, that's, well, that's, Oh, so was see. your was your undergrad in design as well, or was that in psychology? No, it's my undergrad was in a combination between fine art, psychology, philosophy, and sociology. And so I went up to a small liberal arts school called Salem State, just north of Boston, and studied with protege Mark Rothko up there. And I really wow. thought I was going to be a painter. And so he was teaching in their art department. I had a connection through somebody there and I just knew I needed to leave home, get out of my family environment growing up in Delaware and 
Went out to Boston, this great little liberal arts school right on right on the water. And because it was liberal arts, I was like always fascinated with what makes us tick as humans, right? Mm -hmm. Let's study some psychology, some philosophy, some sociology. And so was my major is in fine art. And then I have minors in uh, psychology and in philosophy. It's interesting you say that. I, I went to a small <clears throat> liberal arts college as well. And I was a fine arts major and thinking that I wasn't good enough to make a career as an artist, I decided to become a teacher. And then I learned about design. So I ended up having a fine arts degree with emphasis in design and a minor in teaching. But I share that with you because all of my extra humanity classes were in sociology, psychology, anthropology, yeah. which I had no idea at the time serves me incredibly well when it comes to brand and creativity and now in the position i'm in now is more leadership and strategy so let's I, talk I actually the, the upstream curiosity of those things that probably serves folks like you and i that are wired in that way and while the education i think is important having some understanding of like you know the the humanist psychology and what that actually means and you know anthropology things like that but i think it's the curiosity that led us there that keeps feeding us into the things that we keep doing and reinventing ourselves i couldn't agree more but i also feel as you get older in your career or just as a person on this planet and you start to look around especially the last few years just some of the things that have gone on that i mean if if you haven't shifted or or taken a look at things differently than maybe you're sleepwalking but that's really what brought us back together i've i've known about you i've known you for years and years and years big fan of your work and what you do and i actually saw that statement that we started the podcast out with and i was just like huh this is someone that's at a space that is really interesting. I want to, I want to talk and learn more. So you had an agency, I think for 20 plus years, correct? 23 years. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me what happened because you don't run an agency anymore. You now yeah. are in yeah. a new space. So what was the shift? Yeah. In 2013, I did a, a time tracking exercise and I, I looked at, I, I created a spreadsheet and looked at how I was spending my waking hours over a, it was about a month, maybe a six week period. And, you know, after that six week period of tracking on my time, and it was not just my time at work, but it was also my time outside of work and waking hours and tracked it in 30 minute increments and then did a, an analysis of those times, the, those actions that I was doing in my waking hours at work and not at work, what percentage were in my, what Gay Hendricks would call my zone of genius? And of course, that begs the question, well, what's your zone of genius? And, you know, that's that's another whole consideration. It's different for everybody. But mine has to do with, you know, what I now call human artistry, which is in, in the world of work, we would there would be a lot around ideation and strategy and things like that. And what I realized I was spending only about 10% of my time in anywhere close to that realm, even as I were to label it back then. And I said, oh, that is not good. 
if I were a, a surgeon or a doctor giving an analysis of myself, I would say, you're an unhealthy middle-aged man and something has got to change. And so I said, well, you know what? I, I built, built this beautiful, very profitable prison around me. It is time to reconsider, uh, reapproach, and then... So it was at that point I, I began to package it up so it could be merged with another company, which is ended up what had happened. I got other offers. There was a, a juggernaut organization that wanted to buy me out and we could get into a whole conversation about what an exit strategy looks like, but that would have locked me up for another at least five years within that organization. I was like looking at the calendar saying, nope, I, I want to I wanna go on and do more genius zone work mm. so that was 2017 when i when i merged the company and stepped out and started doing what i'm doing now all right hold on i i, I had not heard this part of the story before so you had made a spreadsheet of yeah. all of your waking hours so tell me how you how long did you do the study for six weeks yeah dude that's a lot of data it's a lot of data and i thought well you know if i take it over a month that's just one month out of a calendar year. So at least I got to extend it out from there. My initial intent was to do it for two months that I was like, screw it. This is enough data. I'm just going <laughs> to like, I can go ahead and, and yeah, uh, I can extrapolate this yeah, out. Of, yeah. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I know, I know enough about, you know, research to, to do that. And, and I picked a spring month, spring month and a half. So it wasn't, you know, December and it wasn't summertime. And, you know, it was sort of, it, it just happened to be during that time of the year. And when I was like, screw this, this is not working. I've got to figure out what am I spending my time on? And, you know, honestly, I was spending most of my time on running the business, mm -hmm. which part of it I love, but it wasn't my genius zone work. Yeah. Yeah. That's another thing that I really appreciate about you. I, th I think we, we interact with a lot of similar things and writings and that sort of thing. You know, everything from the Hendrix to Father War to, I think you and I talked about the conscious leadership group, the work Jim Dethmer and those guys do. Oh, I'm yeah, sure you've heard right. of it. Yeah. If you haven't read Diana it. Chapman is a friend and uh, yeah. Oh, just, she is. She's the best. They're awesome people. Yeah. Out there. Yeah. They're pretty amazing. So, okay. You start this, this new business and then from the time you started to, you know, kind of how you're positioning yourself now, you know, that had to be just a, a life giving exercise to really dig into you and, and we'll say just for the listeners. So again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but really the concept of the zone of genius is that we all have unique gifts that are really aligned with who we are as a, as a, as a individual. And we often, unfortunately only are in that zone very briefly at times. And we end up doing all the things around that. So we end up not doing the kind of work we're truly gifted at doing. Is that a fair? Yeah, the just for clarity's sake, add just a couple of layers. Layers. I just need to jump in here and share with you uh, one of my favorite authors, finds, couples. Gay and Katie Hendricks run the Hendricks Institute, an international learning center that teaches core skills for conscious living and conscious loving. For more than 40 years, their work has been to assist people in opening to more creativity, love, and vitality through the power of conscious relationship and whole person learning. They are passionately committed to creating a worldwide community of people with whom they can explore new heights of love, creativity, and well-being. I tell you what, I enjoy their videos, their books, and what Stephen is about to introduce 
is a game changer. The Zone of Genius. Check them out at Hendrix.com. Okay, Hendrix would say that there's two levels at least that exist below the Zone of Genius, which is the Zone of Competence and the Zone of Excellence. And the Zone of Competence, which we're all familiar with is, you know, things that we are competent at doing and we do well. And then the zone of excellence takes that competency and we are do those things and do them well, but we get handsomely paid for them or well well compensated for them. And what Gay says, which I completely agree with because this is what happened to me, is we get stuck in that zone of excellence because of all the you know financial trappings and the all kinds of things that happens within that. And what one of the things that I realized that I had to do was release myself from that zone of excellence and re-identify with the zone of genius. And I think there's a lot to talk about with who do you identify with in order to live yourself into something. So if I identify myself with you know, being the CEO of this agency and I get sort of in, enraptured with that, then I can stay in that realm. But if I now begin to create a new identity or I self-identify with this thing called, that I call human artistry or as a consultant and advisor, you have to shed the previous identity in order to live yourself into another one. And that's, that's how we go into that zone of genius. And that's also part of what, is that some of the work that you do as well when you, with some of your clients, depending where they're at? Yeah, you know, so when you when an organization's going to the next level, they have to, you know, we know this in the world of brand. When once thinking about well, what is our brand and how are we seen by the world and how do we see ourselves internally, the only way we evolve our brand truly into an exponentially different realm is to begin to see ourselves in that. And so there's this internal restructuring of the way that we think, our organized systems around the, the way that we work. And, and here we're getting into leadership team and potentially culture. And only then do we concern ourselves with the outside world, which is the exterior side of brand. So it is a big part of what I do. And, you know, and typically that starts with a, a core leadership team who is thinking deeply about who are we now and who do we wish that we would become and how do we envision ourselves towards that direction and live it wholeheartedly so that it becomes a reality. Beautiful. Speaking of beautiful, yeah, let's talk about the beautiful business. It's All your right. latest book. Mm -hmm. And uh, thank you again for sending me a copy. I, I love this book, but can you share with the audience what the beautiful business is about and, and what is in your definition a beautiful business? Yeah, so it's it's always helpful to define what do we mean by beauty first so we have context. And you know, the, in, in Western culture we we tend to see beauty as the exterior or something. And and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm really talking about the Japanese aesthetic principles of beauty, which has to do with things that absorb harmony, integrity, reciprocity. And so when we think about the, this felt sense of beauty or experiential sense of beauty, it is automatically now this thing that we have a sense of awe with. It sort of transcends what we can even perceive or visually see as something beautiful, and we feel it and has an impact on us. 
And so, and when we think about, well, how can that be for the world of business? If you think about yourself as an employee or a customer of an organization that you feel is changing your life for the better, moving you, and you feel this ordinary, these ordinary moments of awe or transcendence with it, then at those points, it can be a beautiful business. And beauty, by the way, is not a constant state. It's something that we're always striving towards. And so a beautiful business really is a business that operates with the, with a, a strong sense of integrity, that which exists internal is represented externally. It comes from its own value system, which it deeply believes in. And then it has this sense of reciprocity in that it's caring for all the things that are absorbed within the business. It could be the people, it could be the communities, it could be the resources that it's working with. And all of those things are in lockstep with one another. So really the core of it has to do with reciprocity and integrity. So you talk often about the alignment of brand and culture and leadership philosophy. Mm -hmm. Why, why brand? Why is that? Why is that important? Why is that valuable? You know, and and I'm asking, you know, you'll have, we have clients who are leaders, and they'll be like, well, yeah, I mean, brand, the design thing. I was like, no, listen, when we're talking about your brand, we're talking about much more than design. Yeah, which I'm sure you would agree with. But how would you how would you respond to a leader or or that question? Really, not just a leader, but. Yeah, I get the leadership thing. I understand, you know, culture is a thing, but why is brand a part of that mix? Yeah. Well, the way I define brand is it's really about character. And so again, I'm gonna, you know, let's go back into the the humanist psychology discussion. Um I believe that every organization on the planet is really an extension of what the leaders believe it is. And if that's true then not only can that organization reinvent itself over and over and over again because the leaders are reinventing themselves it also represents a value system that's lived into being and because people experience that value system only through the behaviors and sometimes through how it communicates and how it positions itself and you know but really to the degree that it walks its talk then all of a sudden it's really about character. And so character is this felt sense that I believe and I know that every person has, whether or not they're conscious of it, and every business has it too. And so when, we're, when, we, when we overlay the idea of um, humanistic psychology, which is how we behave in the world and how we see the world and interact with the world, when a business begins to operate with that level of consciousness in what it's doing it then all of a sudden has this orchestrated system that it is character defining and that's what i mean by brand and certainly part of that has to do with how we how you know say a design firm represents it externally and that could be you know voice tone or even imagery and the, and the fusion of that through story but Upstream from even the voice tone and imagery is the belief system that defines that voice tone and imagery and, and the stories that it puts out into the world. And therefore it's gonna have impact and it's character that has impact. And so that's that's what I believe a brand actually is at the end of the day. I can rally around that any day <laughs> of the week, my friend. Yeah. So this may be somewhat of an unfair question, but I'll, I'll ask it anyways. I have one question with two parts and you can answer them 
collectively if they're similar or different, but business leaders who run a, who want to run a beautiful business and or creative leaders, what are the things they struggle with the most? Mm. Or what are their biggest blind spots that, that you go in and, and this is pretty regular uh, thing that you need to help them shift on or, or be open to or, or see differently? Yeah. Well, I don't know that I, there's nothing regular about it. So here, here's what tends to happen. It's had a business leader. Let's, let's take a professional services business leader. They've had some version of an awakening and David Brooks would call this in his book, the second mountain. The first mountain of life is the mountain of success. And it's the mountain that people and especially business leaders tend to climb early on, depending on how old they are. But let's say pre midlife, 30s and 40s, you're climbing the mountain success, you're, you're gaining all kinds of accolades and maybe money and, and even responsibility. And you climb the peak of that particular mountain and you look around at the view and you say, really, is this all there is? And so the awakening, and it could be many versions of awakening, people are gonna hear awakening and they think it has to be a spiritual awakening. I think it can be, it doesn't have to be. But they have an awakening that, that really begins to wonder, what is more in life that I want to go seeking? And they're thinking about that, not just through their life, obviously, but when they look at their business and say, okay, great, it's very successful, it's coming along great, but I don't feel fulfilled that awakening intersection happens at that particular point. So it's at that point that they begin to wonder, well, if there's a something else, what is that something else? And I think it's at that point they begin to think about, okay, well, how can I bring a stronger sense of character or more in integrity and impact within the organization that I'm building and working towards while still making great money, but having the bigger effects within the world that I want to have happen. And, you know, some people begin to think about legacy at that point. And so it's at that point, people begin to think about, well, okay, maybe beauty is part of this. They probably don't come to that on their own, but if they've read the book, they're thinking, oh, maybe this is an attribute, you know, because it's about integrity and reciprocity, then how do I apply this into my world? And so that how-to question is usually when, the, you know, the proverbial, phone rings, you know, when I get an email, it says, okay, I get it. I'm, I'm all in. I, I get what you're talking about. How do we make this happen? Kind of thing. And it's at that point we put our heads together and figure out, you know, how do I help them? But depending on where they're at. So let's go back to your question. This now is like the everydayness. Get into the everyday. The things that they're up against is typically the trappings of success, just like I have experienced and I suspect you have too which is how do we release ourselves from those trappings of success and double down on those things of the tr of the impact points? And how do I make commitments to myself and to my leadership team that go into greater impact while carrying success, all the other metrics of success, such as a profitable business along with us? And then we're, we're not talking about us, we're talking about them, right? So who are we trying to impact? 
what are we trying to impact in what ways? Is it something environmental? Is it something that has to do with the world of our people? Is it a customer, even if, even though it might be a technology product? How do we make their lives better in some way, shape or form? Or how do we double down and make their lives exponentially better in some way, shape or form? And those are the kinds of questions that I love getting involved in you know, the C-suite and the boardrooms. Mm-hmm. And while they're not ordinary, they're, they're ordinary questions that every business leader ought to be thinking about, in, in my opinion, anyhow. What kind of impact are we really trying to make? And this goes into, uh, I'm going to go into a, a rant here for just for a second around purpose statements. <laughs> I think there's been an overwashing of purpose statements in, in the world of companies. And a lot of companies are raising their hands saying, because of the zeitgeist of society is wanting purpose, saying that we're a purpose-driven company too. But what they don't do is the self-accountability that that talks about, well, if I say that our purpose is this, what does that mean from an impact standpoint? And I think um, consumers or even in the B2B world have far less tolerance for people giving lip service to things. And they're going to hold organizations accountable for saying if they if they say their purpose is X, Y, X, Y and Z and they're not living up to it, then they're going to jump ship because trust now is all of a sudden diminished within that organization. And I think what should be happening is a shift from purpose statements to impact statements to talk about, because really a purpose is how are we impacting the world or how, or more precisely, how are we impacting the world of the people that we're intending to serve? And if people, business leaders hold themselves accountable, truly measurable and accountable for those things. Now, all of a sudden we're talking about something. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, <clears throat> That's one thing I took away from reading your book too, was this aligning your direction for uh, an impact at so many different levels of your business, individually, but also those around you that you impact and, and, you know, creating a possibility for that reality to exist. Right. Absolutely. Um, And so I was giggling because we do those kind of statements. They're internal statements to really help align leadership. But I hear what you're saying. It's a piece of a bigger puzzle, but it shouldn't yeah. always be like, you know, what you're screaming off the mountaintop is the whole reason you exist. I look at it more as like a tool to help get everyone kind of reading from the same, you know, map going the same direction, that sort of sure. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I just kept thinking to myself here is, a, you know, you grew up grew up in the East Coast and kind of traveled across country and and you ran a successful agency for years and years. And now I look at the people you interact with and I see, you know, kind of the lens that you look at life with so much of the, you know, the tools that are around us from great thinkers, great authors, great writers. If you were to sit and look back at yourself, you know, 20 years ago, Stephen, what do you wish you could tell yourself? Oh, 20 years ago. Yeah. You can pick it 20 years, 30 years, sure, sure. whatever. And and yeah. I want to, and, and first of all, I'm going to take this pass off. I'm going to make it harder for you. <laughs> I understand that a lot of what you would say now, you could never have gotten there had you not gone down the path that you have gone. So I know I'm asking you somewhat of an unfair question, but I will say this. I wish 
I could go back and tell myself two things. One is really understanding the zone of genius concept, meaning you're really good at these things. You got into this because you love these things, right? So the more you can stay in that space, the more fulfilling it will be for you. And the second is to not take myself so seriously or my work so seriously. Because I, yeah. I spent so much energy getting way too into it. Yeah. There, I took the pressure off. That's yeah, really good. Yeah. Yeah. I think, well, the, the, there's probably a single piece of advice that stems off into a couple different directions. I would tell that younger version of myself to fugitive yourself from the expectations of society. Hmm. And what I mean by that is, you know, so I'll personalize this, and but it's universal to a certain extent. I was raised into a world and to a family system that had, that required, because I was a human, the care, the nurturing, the safety, the security, and the, you know, the connection and love of my family and, and the people around me. And at the same time, I was, I was then indoctrinated into a belief system of, here's what society expects from you. And, you know, I would tell that person at that age to, okay, great, safety and security exists, and you've loved and cared for your family, become a fugitive to all those things. Don't pay any mind to what other people think about you or what society thinks you ought to be and go pursue your life as if it were truly your own. And so when I talk about human artistry, I wish I knew about human artistry then that I, what I know about it now. Hmm. That's great. Thinking about just the world as it is now, you and I have had a few conversations about just the trials and tribulations of the last several years when it comes to being a leader. I refuse to look at this as anything other than a teachable silver lining experience, although it's been hard for me individually and us as an organization. What do you feel these days um, that maybe leaders are, I hear, I read every day, leaders, you know, tend to um, blame their employees in the workplace, you know, and, and it makes me sad that they're not taking responsibility for their leadership, you know, because I, I think, for example, I think we did a lot of great things over the last couple of years and we did a bunch of things wrong. And, and I'm grateful for that. I'm not grateful for maybe the individuals that hurt and or the pain that, you know, I personally went through. But what do you feel leaders are getting wrong right now when it comes to kind of the current state of the workplace? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a couple of things. And, and I don't know that I would position this as, as wrong. I think it's sort of where we're headed, although there is one wrong. So I'll say the wrong and then I'll talk about what I think is really happening kind of below the surface on certain realms of, of key things in the world of business and especially in the world of work. So the the first thing I would talk about is, you know, the the thing that, you know, so we have this, you know, the great quit or the the, the great resignation and the big quit, right? So those are the top level terms that people had. And now you see this big pendulum swing for organizational leaders to double down on culture and care for people. And I think what's going to happen there is there's going to be a, a backlash to that. And leaders who have 
quote unquote, overcared for people, they're going to find out that people still are checked out. People still don't, some people don't want a job or don't want this job or whatever. And that, you know, workplace either dysfunction or really workplace disengagement is going to be a thing and it's going to continue to be a thing. And because leaders have now overextended themselves, they're going to go into their own healing process and they're going to say, oh, what is what do I need to heal within myself or within my leadership team, partially on a personal side and partially on the business side, so that we then end up being truly a company of integrity and so that we're not responding or reacting to what culture says with the big quit we're actually just really caring for people. We really do just want to care for people. And it's part and parcel to who we are. And we're caring and I'm caring as a business leader for myself at the same time. So I think there's going to be a healing journey that takes place within that. And we're going to probably see a backlash. And I think really what falls underneath of all this is the recognition that we are all inextricably connected to one another. And that if you know, leaders are not caring for themselves. How can they possibly care for somebody else? And if they're over caring for somebody else, then or how, to what extent are they caring for themselves? And then, you know, a culture doesn't exist in the silo. It is a microcosm to a larger extent of our society. And by the way, that's now a global society that maybe thanks to the internet is living at the speed of the internet can live and that you know the, the common denominators that we're all inextricably connected to one another i think people who wake up to that realization and live with that reality are going to treat everything in their world including their work very very differently wow i love it well, actually, I don't love all of it, but I get it. You know, um, uh, this is, these are not easy things, right? No, and you know, I I was processing there, and I just kind of said words. But if <laughs> if to be more in tune, I think that I fell into that same thing. I I, I think what's interesting, and, and you know, I, I believe I've I've said this often. I have made many many mistakes over the years. And I hopefully I've acknowledged them and learned from them and grew from them and went on. But there are definitely times where I haven't been transparent enough as a leader of saying, hey, this is hard for me too. This is painful for me too. I love that you're coming to me for the answers. And you know, right now, I just don't know. I know that we're going this way and I know that we're, we're going to make it through, but I don't know exactly what are some of the next steps. Yeah. And I think at least for me over the last few years is I felt I had, I had to have all the answers. And I thought that I was doing that to protect my team when I think there's many times that stopped me from listening and being more in touch with what was actually going on. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, you know, the, I don't think you're alone in that, in that, you know, I really needed, felt the need to care for my team, especially during the pandemic. And, and I think that sense of protection is a good thing to a point, but it's, you know, it's a, it's, and trust me, I've, I've, I've lived with this too, where I've overprotected my team and other leaders around me from things that I didn't necessarily need to protect them from in hindsight, that 
the reality is, and or at least my my belief of the reality is that, you know, as a team, we're all in this together, even though the leader has certain responsibilities for setting vision and removing obstacles to achieve that vision. And I think if a leader just does those two key things, then the and allows then the the team to step forward and share in the responsibility to move towards those those objectives or those that vision then then we're truly all in this together you know, so you go back to there's nothing more powerful than a united group of people ignited in a common cause with love at the core and everyone has to have that love in order to be united around the things and ignited about the cause and you know Again, my vision of, of a great leader is someone who just knows what that vision is and can articulate it and then removes the obstacles as much as possible to get there. And, uh, you know, trust me, Justin, I, I know it. I feel it. I've been there, too. I have overextended myself. I'm I'm a protector and a provider by nature. And those elements within me have come out in some unhealthy ways. And I see it in other business leaders too. And even some of the coaching work that I do with executives is to you know, enable mutual responsibility in moving things forward. Hmm. Oh, thank you for <clears throat> sharing that. You know, I know we're at time here, so I want to respect your your space, but I, I shared with you that I'm writing a new book. You actually inspired kind of the the more or less the, the tagline or the subject line. And that is, now is the time to live with radical intent. Mm-hmm. I'm continuing to explore what's more and more true and also how to live with more and more kindness to myself first and then to those around me, just having intention on those things and, and really kind of peeling back a lot of the BS that yeah. like you were saying, you know, that, you, you were dealing with in, in your younger self, right? Living in a space or in an expectation that really wasn't true. It just is what you thought it was true or, or, or what you allowed to be true in your, in your paradigm. So, well, my friend. I suspect, can I just say one thing about what you just course, shared? Of course. I can. suspect that, that one thing that, that I hope you'll write about in this wonderful book that you're about to put out into the world. And I don't want to shape any of the content, but I, I do believe it takes radical acts of self-love in order to live into radical intent. And that might be for another conversation over, over that coffee or beer that you mentioned, you know, that we can't give what we don't have. And, you know, this, you know, there's nothing more powerful than a united group of souls ignited with a common cause with love of the core. We can't give that out unless we love ourselves first and foremost. And, and, and maybe in this day and age, that's one of the most radical things that we can do. Yes, 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 yes. More of that. And that really is what we were just talking about, you know, beforehand is part of the things that, you know, I struggled with was that. And so, man, this hour went way too fast. Thank you so much. And you know what? We will talk about my book when you have me on your show, when I launch the book and see what I did right there. Put you right on the spot. Bring it on. (laughs) Bring it on. I'd welcome it. Yeah. I can't wait to read the book and I know what you're up to in the world and I congratulate you for that and the courage that you're embarking upon to head off into your own zone of genius. Mm. Thanks, brother. Uh, we'll, We'll stay in touch. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Justin. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to my main man, Stephen Morris, for being a wise and heart led human 
who believes there's nothing more powerful than a united group of souls ignited in the common cause with love at the core. For more on Stephen, his books, and give his podcast a listen, go to matterco.co, M-A-T-T-E-R-C-O dot C-O. I also want to thank Sleeping At Last for providing our show soundtrack all these seasons. For more on Sleeping At Last music, please go to sleepingatlast.com or search for Sleeping At Last wherever you get your music. And to Design of's audio engineer, Steve Wick, who loved this episode so much because it made him think of his favorite song that helps him feel beautiful. And you just make me feel so beautiful. Baby, baby, you're beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did making it. If so, please give us a ranking on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Tell others about our show and your social media of choice and stay tuned for more of season nine coming soon. Please follow us on Twitter at Design of Podcast and check out our site at rule29.com forward slash design of podcast. See you next episode.